Great to be with you again as we open up the scriptures and look at this fantastic, wonderful theme. Challenging, yes, but inspirational too. And that, of course, is the theme of revival now. It was the uh, evangelist Billy Bray. None of us would have been around when he was ministering. He was a little Irish evangelist and quite quaint in many ways. And he said these words. He said, anyone in this great gathering tonight want a revival? And of course, there was always the polite murmur and the occasional amen. But that wasn't good enough for Billy Bray. And he just closed his eyes, lifted his hands and said, well, I'll have one myself. And I think that probably is a very real, in essence anyway, a real conviction of many of us, that even if those round about us, loving Christian friends, are not as impassioned about revival, it's up to you and I to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. You can have a personal revival or refreshment or reawakening, a moving of the Spirit again in your hearts like you've had before, even when others around you are perhaps uh, dispassionate and not so keen on uh, moving into a new realm and a new depth with God. Revival is different and yet there are links between awakening and revival. There's, there's a great difference there. An awakening is when a whole nation or citizens of a certain region suddenly become quickened by the Spirit of God. This usually is a sovereign move of the Spirit of God. When God sovereignly just comes upon a people or comes upon a nation, and there may or may not have been great intercession and great prayer for that to happen. But sovereignly God says, I will move and who will prevent it? I will do something because it's in my will and purpose to have it done. And I think that probably was a remarkable thing that happened probably about 40, 45 years ago, in America particularly, and then it spread around the world, among the Catholic believers, people that really wanted something more than just formal religion. It was Pope John the Thirteen who said these words. He said, we want a new renewal in the Holy Spirit. And that had tremendous effect on many, many people. And I met one of those people, or actually sat under his ministry, and he was a young man in his 30s, and he was struck by what Pope John Thirteenth had said. He had been really concerned about formalism in the church. He was concerned about many, many things that just didn't add up for him. He read his Bible, he was a, a man that hungered for God, and as he sought God, he realized that the difference between church and the Bible was so far removed. There was such a great difference, a chasm, in fact. And so he began to seek God. And he was in some way related to Notre Dame University over there in America. And as he began to seek God in the chapel of that university, 
Others joined him, and not too many, just three, four, five or six. And then they became aware that really this was a passion of all their hearts. And so they began to speak very, very openly with one another that how indifferent they felt the church was, how formalistic, ritualistic, sacramental, but lacking the Spirit of God. And they took Pope John's words and they began to talk about it together and they realised that the Spirit of God was not predominant in the church, not even active that they could see, and so they prayed when suddenly the Spirit of God just came upon them in the early part of that seeking of God together, just 12, 14, 16, then 20, and then before long the chapel that seated quite a few hundred was packed to capacity with people coming and beginning to seek God. But, you know, there was no one teaching them, no one standing up and saying, this is what we've got to do, this is how we go about it, this is what revival is. No one from the denominations outside the Roman Catholic Church were there, just this group of very heart-hungry people for God. That became an awakening in the church. And, of course, many of us were in that wonderful charismatic renewal that then spilled over to many, many churches, or it could be argued was happening in other places coincidentally. And at the same time, different churches in the Methodist Church or the Uniting Church of Australia, people were seeking God. They wanted something more than what they had. And then, of course, the Pentecostal people were very, very intrigued that these churches that had, for so many decades and centuries even, had ridiculed the Pentecostal experience, were now experiencing it themselves. Where does it all begin? Well, we're not talking so much about the sovereignty of God in awakening. We're talking more so about how you and your family and those that are in your inner circle, your local church, can have a real move of the Spirit of God. Now, this will not make you popular. It won't make you popular in the bowels of hell. Satan will be tremendously stirred to attack and oppose even your seeking of God. But that's where it starts. We're going to turn again to the book of Nehemiah, this wonderful book. And Nehemiah has a very intriguing name. His name means repentance of the Lord. It also means consolation. And if we can just talk for a moment about that, the significance of such a name, consolation, what's that mean? It means that in a time of need, in a time of sorrow, in a time of barrenness, in a time of anxiety or fear, there is this wonderful something that happens within your heart. It's more than an emotion. It's a spiritual experience of comfort and strength. And it steals into your heart. And that's what his name meant. Consolation, comfort, strength. And there's another aspect of his name which is very interesting. And it ties it all in. It's repentance of the Lord. Well, we could say repentance towards the Lord. But literally, it's repentance of the Lord. 
And so when Nehemiah in the first chapter is there working as he was one of the captives from Jerusalem, that he hears that Jerusalem is in a terrible state. The walls, as he would have imagined, were broken down. But when someone comes to visit and sits down with him and begins to recount how bad the situation is in Jerusalem, that the walls are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So Jerusalem is really a heap of ruins and vulnerable and any enemy can come and do whatever it wills, and Jerusalem is there, absolutely vulnerable, broken down. Anyone can invade, pillage, steal, do whatever they want to do. Murder, of course. And there's just a few hapless people there in comparison to its glory days. Now, Jerusalem, according to Psalm 48, is to be the joy of the whole earth. And because of that, Psalm 48 says, it is the city of the great king. And what a far and terrible contrast it is for the Nehemiah recognition that Jerusalem is now a heap of broken down walls, burned gates, vulnerable just waiting to be further pillaged until there's nothing left. When we come to the end of ourselves, we are reminded of the statement that we've repeated before in these studies, and it's simply this, man's extremity is God's opportunity. When we are at our lowest, and when we are down and there is no hope of human recovery, that's where God can come in. And you may be facing a terrible situation in your life or in your church. It may be something that has broken you completely because of something that's happened. Or it may be that your church is in dearth and you feel that it's been robbed and it's empty and it's just hollow and people are just going through the motions comfortable once glorious once, fruitful once, and now just a dried up empty vine. And that, of course, could be said of many churches in many places, many lives in many places, many homes, families, just like that. So what do you do? You can sit among the ruins and you can sit in those burned out gates and lament and complain and feel anxious, and feel resentful, and you can recount the sins of others and of yourself that have brought you to this place, or you can seek the Lord while he may be found. You know, that is the starting point. That's where we come to a place where we say, Lord, this is dreadful. This is terrible. I've never seen this place or my heart or my life or my church or my family in such a terrible state. But I am going to start in my weakness and in my emptiness. And yes, confessing my sin, I'm going to come before you and say, I need you to start to do a new thing in the land, in the church, in my heart, in my home in my family. 
And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. It was when I heard these words, chapter 1 and verse 4, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for many days. Nehemiah's heart is with Jerusalem. That to him is the citadel of Israel. That's the place where the worship in the temple on the mount is so important to him. It's the focal point of Israel because everything in every way centers in that which is spiritual. And he sees this as defiled and destroyed. And so, of course, you have this emotion. He wept, he mourned for many days. And you know, it's not such a bad thing when we are faced with something so horrible that we feel so bereft that we weep and we moan and we are feeling a sense of gravity within our spirit. And you know, as patience is to have its perfect work, so is a spirit of mourning. Because we have a wonderful promise in the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And of course, another Beatitude is, Blessed are those that are pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Now, we could put those two together, and when we are of pure heart, we see things very, very plainly, spiritually. We are attuned, and we feel desperate, and we feel a great sense of loss and a pang of pain within our beings. And we are so sorrowful, and we are so repentant, and we feel cast upon the Lord a great place to be. And that's how Nehemiah was. And he began then in that state of mourning and state of weeping. That subsides. And of course, the Bible says that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. When we go through this period of mourning and, and seeking God and a feeling so desperate, we find that this is the threshold to something better. It's the pathway to God's wonderful provision and his intervention into our circumstance. Because it says here that after he had mourned many days, he was fasting. He was laying aside all that is natural, all that is pleasant, and all that is usual to fast before God. And if you in your state are concerned about your heart condition or your circumstances, or you feel objectively that the church where you are needs a reawakening, it needs a visitation of God, it needs the Spirit of God to come in, reviving the people and doing some miraculous work where people are going to sit up and take notice and say, this is the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. If that's where you're at, I want to tell you, let the emotion of sorrow and grief have its course. And then when that dissipates, when that seems to change, then there will be a resolution within your heart. And the first thing is to 
set yourself to seek the Lord. And there is no better way than with prayer and fasting. So he says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is where not only the book of Nehemiah begins, but the great transformation begins. The transformation of Jerusalem is first felt in a transformation of outlook and resolve by Nehemiah. And he gives us insight here into his prayer and into his heart through that prayer. I said, verse 5, chapter 1, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. I hesitate there because I want you just to get the picture. You know, the quality of prayer is humility and total humility. I notice here that he says these words. He says, Oh, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now. Now, one could, if that was a full stop there, one could say, Ah, here's a spiritual man praying for those that are obviously not. But he includes himself in the reason for the dearth, the reason for the chastening, the reason for the judgment, the reason for the exile to Babylon and beyond. Listen to these words. Oh, he says, I pray before you now and day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. It's amazing, you know, when we start praying that it's so easy to pray for them to repent and those to put things right. But, you know, the power is when we just absolutely refrain from criticizing one another or judging one another. And we come before the Lord in simplicity and say, Lord, I am no better than anyone else. I am as guilty as any. I confess my humanity. I confess my dearth. I confess my uncleanness. I confess that I have put other things before you. My father's house are guilty, and I, being part of that, am guilty too. And we know from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. And this is how Nehemiah classes himself as being one with the people who in their decadence and in their departure from holiness of life and in worship 
He says, I am just as they are. And we are bearing the burden of your judgment. And therefore I acknowledge my sin as well as the sins of my father's house. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. And then he says these words, which I think are wonderful, and this is the light in the darkness. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You know, in the midst of the disaster, there's hope. Now, you can only see that in the Lord. When things are so grim and so dour and so dire and so dark, you need even a candle in that darkness. But there's more than a candle here. He says, remember, Lord, your covenant. Remember what you promised. If there was chastening, if there was a need for judgment, you said that if we humbled ourselves and sought your face and asked, Lord, that you would do this, See, this is Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. In our desperation, we need a promise. And the promise is in the nature of God and the word of God. And the promise is, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, even though I've cast you to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather you from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Well, we know where that place is, where the dwelling place of God is. It's in Jerusalem in the temple. And so he's saying, Lord, you promised restoration. And if we go across to Jeremiah, which I'm turning to now, Jeremiah 31, you'll hear these wonderful comprehensive words. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labours with child together, a great throng shall return. So Jeremiah had the same confidence. He had the same awareness that God would bring his people back. It's marvellous here. That's what Jeremiah 31 is all about. God speaks through Jeremiah saying, I have loved you. 
not just Jeremiah or Nehemiah, but Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. Isn't that wonderful? And of course we have that glorious 10th verse. And this is as much as real to us today as it was in Jeremiah's day and Nehemiah's day. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at heart. Isn't that wonderful? And that's indeed what happened in Nehemiah's day. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Nehemiah feels that he's got to do something not just spiritual, but practical. So he says these words, O Lord, chapter 1 and verse 11, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, oh, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, which is, of course, the king, because he believes he has a strategy and he has a plan. I was the king's principal servant. I was the cupbearer. I brought to him the wine and the food, and I was his taster. I was the one that was in charge of his table. And I, therefore, am in a strategic place to do something and to bring restoration to my people, but I must have his permission. God has shown me his will. I have his will written in my heart. But there are practicalities that have to be overcome. And next time, in the next episode, we'll go beyond that and we'll find out what indeed happened and all that Nehemiah faced, not only in coming to the king, but going back to Jerusalem to see what he could see and to indeed pray as he went. We used to call those prayer walks. I'll tell you more about that in the next episode.